Hello and welcome to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Nate Mancini, I'm one of the founders of Forefront, and we have a very special episode for you today. This is a recording of the keynote that Dr. David Kim gave at Forefront Festival 22 last month. Just a quick note, there were some audio issues at the very beginning of the talk, but those get resolved after just a few minutes. Okay, now I'm going to hand it over to myself, introducing David Kim at Forefront Festival 22. Enjoy the show. So with that, I'm so grateful to to introduce our opening keynote speaker, and that is Reverend Dr. David Kim. So why David Kim at Forefront Festival? Well, he has a, a rich history of, of connecting our faith in Christ to the work that we do in the world. Um, he ran the Redeemer Center for Faith and Work in New York City. He directed the Gotham Fellowship, and he was the editor of the NIV Faith and Work Bible. And, and today, he runs an organization called Goldenwood in New York City, which makes this bold claim. Our collective work, when revived, will offer glimpses of God's coming glory. So, so that has incredible and beautiful implications for the arts. And so I am very grateful that he can unpack for us today the calling of the Christian artist. So please welcome keynote speaker, Dr. David Kim. Well, um, it's a pleasure to be here with you all. And it's, uh, you know, not a lot of traveling these days. Um, so it's, it's a double pleasure and because I also have two little boys. And as much as I love them, it is nice to get a little bit of uh, a break. Uh, don't let them hear that. But um, I just got to be honest up here. And it is interesting that uh, I've been doing much more. Um, I have, I'm an Enneagram 7. I don't know if that means anything to any of you. But uh, Enneagram 7 is love variety. We, like, we don't like to stay still very long. And so my life has been just different every week, every day just seems like a different kind of activity. And uh, most of my work has been really consulting organizations and maybe counseling, coaching individuals. But more recently, the, the speaking has kind of picked up a little bit. And this week, Forefront, next week I'm speaking at a church called Storefront. And uh, I'm like, okay, God, what are you trying to tell me? I guess you're putting me on the front lines here. And uh, we all know what happens on the front lines. So I don't know what I should anticipate during my time the next two times, but I think one of the things that uh, that speaks to me is just the importance of speaking in our day, in our culture today, because we are living in hard times. Uh, these past two years, we've been through a global trauma, and as someone who talks to people who have been traumatized by very by different things, it is very uh, safe to say that we have endured a lot of trauma, and that trauma creates a lot of darkness, and we're seeing that darkness come out in so many different ways. And that's why it's so important for me to be able to bring this message to you all as artists, because artists play a very critical role in, the, in God's economy in bringing a certain kind of flourishing to the global village that we live in. And I want to talk a little bit about why your calling as an artist matters to our larger society, and especially given where we are in our world. None of us like to process pain. That's just universal. And yet, without the processing of pain, the pains just kind of come back up later in our lives. And so I have found as kind of a counselor, as a pastor, as someone who works with people trying to uh, make the most out of where we are, we have to find ways to be able to process some of the things that we've been through, especially in the workplace. Because I have found the shift that's happened is workplaces are now taking the responsibility of helping their people process. 
they are now, you're hearing taglines from major corporations saying, bring your authentic self to work, right? Bring your whole self. We will hire counselors and people to help you process through these last two years. And I think that's a tremendous service that we see happening in the world around us. And we as Christians ought to be leading the way in helping people process their pain. And artists have a very specific way of helping people process pain through the back door, right? And not through the front door of just talking about your pain, but through the back door of accessing something that we often kind of lock up within ourselves, but somehow listening to a piece of art, viewing a piece of art, releases something within us that is so powerfully healing. Something that has been locked up, somehow another human being is able to connect with you in a way that resonates so powerfully within you that a pain and a wound that was within you is now being released. And so you begin to experience again a sense of your humanity. And we move from the languishing that we've been in into a sense of a desire to bring healing to the world around us. And I want to help us to kind of trace why in the scriptures do we see the critical calling of artists? And I want to take us through a little bit of a journey of why artists not only matter for local communities, but especially given where we are in our world, in the pandemic, everything that's happening politically, everything that's happening um, in political relationships internationally. Uh, There's a lot going on. It's depressing for me to think about all the things I could list on. Uh, But I think we're just going to say it's a dark time. And I want to begin to think about how Scripture has embedded within our culture artists to help us process these dark times. Um, before I do that and turn, to, and turn into Scripture, I want, to do, I want to try something with you all, okay? This works with some audiences. It doesn't work with other audiences. But I want, um, there's going to be a QR code. I hope you guys, I mean, one thing about the pandemic, it has made QR codes pretty universal. So if you can just put your phone on that QR code, okay? And it'll take you to a link. But just do that. Don't do anything yet. But the question I want to ask is, as you think about the next 10 years, do you see the world as getting better or getting worse? You can go to the next slide. If you think about the uh, world in the next 10 years, do you see the world getting better or getting worse? And I want you to rate between five and negative five. Okay, so keep a mental, I want you to keep this in your mind, and actually you're going to punch it in into uh, the QR code because it's going to ask you what your numbers are. Okay, so if you can multitask, think of the number and punch it in, go ahead and do that. Positive five, things are getting much better. Negative five, things are getting much worse. The second question, how capable do you feel of personally affecting the future? How capable do you feel of personally affecting the future? Again, negative five, meaning not capable at all. Positive five, feeling very capable of affecting the future. And go ahead and have a mental note of what number you uh, place on there. All right, you guys did a great job. I got the uh, answers here. Okay, interesting, interesting. Okay, you guys want to know how you guys scored collectively? Okay, on the first question, in the next 10 years, um, this is with respect to um, if things are getting better or worse, you guys actually averaged on zero. <laughs> You're just right in the middle. Not getting better, not getting worse. So that's, that's pretty good, actually. That's actually been the most positive score that I've encountered. 
So maybe that is, you know, part of the cold thing here. You guys are always looking optimistically. Um, so if I factor in the cold, you guys are probably about like a negative two. So, okay. Um, in the next 10 years, about your agency to change things, you guys are averaging at two. So you guys collectively think that you have agency to bring about change in the next 10 years, which does not surprise me with artists, actually. I was anticipating that there would be a positive score. And artists in particular, I think there is this ability to think optimistically about what can happen and the agency that you as artists have. But let me just say, like, the range here certainly goes from negative four to five. Um, so there's just a, a good variety of people, but that would be your average answer, too. Now, think about this in a graph. You're at z zero. If you think about if you can go to the next slide, you can see the graph of this. You guys are plotting at zero and two. Right? Zero is the um, y-axis, and two is the x-axis there. So I would put a little dot or a red dot at the two on the x-axis. Now, this exercise uh, is actually a formal test that was developed by uh, a Jewish sociologist, Frederick Polak, and it's actually called uh, the Polak uh, Game. And he used this. He, uh, Frederick Polak was, um, uh, he was, uh, he was in, survived the Holocaust. Uh, he hid from the Nazis uh, in the Netherlands. And then he published a, a landmark book called The Image of the Future, uh, which he wrote in, in, in Dutch in the 1950s. And part of what he was trying to understand is what leads to the decline of a civilization or a society or a nation, he, because he lived through it during World War II. And when he began to understand the factors that helped kind of gauge whether a society was in the incline or, or decline, he looked at these two variables. Do people think things are getting better and secondly, do they think they have agency to change that? And when you find yourself in the lower left-hand quadrant, when a society is kind of averaging there, there's a good chance that that society will begin to live out what their fears are. Whereas a society that is in the upper right-hand quadrant is in a period of great incline and increase and flourishing. And I think if we were to take a, a gauge of where we are as a society, where do you guys think we would be? You don't have to answer that out loud, but just kind of gauge where, uh, given all that's happening, all that's in the news, where you might find where we are today. Because if you project that now 10 years, that's a good indication of where we might be. And so much of this deals with this idea of the imagination. What do you think about when you think about the future? What do you imagine? And what's interesting is when people who study the brain uh, look at your brain, when you think about the future, the parts of your brain that light up are actually the, the memories of the past. Isn't that interesting? So your sense of the future is shaped by the things that you have experienced in the past. And if in the past you've experienced a lot of pain and trauma, you can imagine then what your vision of the future will be. And that vision, that imagination becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. And you can start to see why then the work and the calling of the artist is so important. Because artists have the ability to shape the imagination. To create an image of something that they themselves have not experienced. 
but by visualizing something or experiencing some art, all of a sudden you are part of something, a different kind of narrative that you've been entered, invited into. And when we think, I want to now ground this in Scripture just so that um, this directly relates to God's intention for artists. That grounded in creation is the calling for artists to cultivate or be guardians or to steward the imagination for the whole of our society. Let me take you through a very quick kind of look at Genesis 1 to just show you where we see this in Scripture. Uh, When we think about Genesis 1, you point up, when God is creating this world, I don't want to go through each... um, Genesis 1 exhaustively. Uh, Bruce Walke, for those of you guys who like commentaries and where things come from, uh, he posited in his Genesis commentary this framework hypothesis where he saw in days 1 through 3, well, he saw two triads. The first triad is days 1 through 3, and in this triad, God creates these spheres or kind of um, realms. So, for example, light is a realm that God creates, uh, the firmament and and the dry land in day 3. And then the second triad is days four through six. And days four through six, that triad f- fills the realms. And so it's the flourishing within the realm. So, for example, when God creates the realm of light, he fills it through the light bearers, the sun, the moon, the stars. And day two, he creates the firmament, which in effect creates the sky and the seas. And then in the corresponding day five, he fills those realms with birds and fish. Day three, God creates dry land, and then the corresponding triad, day six, he creates land, land animals, and then human beings. And he began to notice that pattern that when God creates this world, he creates these spheres or realms, and then he fills it. And when he fills it, there's, there's this kind of increase in kinetic energy and activity so that it begins to flourish. And you read Genesis 1, and you see the language of teeming and flourishing, and you can see this trajectory that God built creation for. That once you begin to build the foundations of these realms, then these realms get filled and flourished by this, all this life-giving activity. And then in day seven, he says, in day six, he creates humanity, and he tells Adam and Eve this thing that we call the cultural mandate, I want you to fill the earth and to subdue it, to cultivate this, this earth in the likeness that, he, that basically God revealed to them in days one through six. So another way of saying this, God intends humanity to do what God did in days one through six. So when you ask the question, what does it mean to fill the earth? Well, it's a lot more than having kids. It means cultivating this world in the same way that God takes these from very primordial things. He begins to organize them and create realms so that within these realms there can be flourishing. Now, theologian Max Stackhouse, who was, uh, he was at Princeton Theological Seminary for many years and he passed away a few years ago, he wrote a, a really impressive and important four-volume work called God and Globalization. And, and in that series, he was looking at what sociologists were discovering through globalization trends and studies uh, of what was common in all kind of civilizations. And he saw that every enduring civilization has four primary spheres, family, an economic structure, a governmental structure, and then the arts. But Max Stackhouse's big contribution to this field of, of studies and understanding these four primary outer spheres, his thesis was that 
that there was the religious sphere in the center that really shaped the development of all those four primary spheres. And he's saying that every society, if you want to look at the way that family, economics, government, and the arts kind of are shaped, it's going to be dependent upon the religion that gives a worldview for those particular spheres. Now, let me try to narrativize this, because when you look at that, it's kind of like, okay, that's interesting. Every society has these four spheres. Okay. But now, let me try to kind of run through this so that you get a sense of how this operates. So, for example, if I have a family, it's a very primitive society, and I want my family to flourish, I go to my neighbor, and I say, my neighbor is a, a, a farmer, and I say, I will give you some meat in exchange for some wheat, and we're both going to be better off. And he says, okay. We shake hands on it, and I'll say, I'll give you this amount of meat or this amount of wheat. I go out there, and it is hard, and I don't, I can't find, I don't make the kills that I'm supposed to, but I've already consumed the wheat that he's given me, and so I can't make good, and he comes to me and says, where is the meat? And I tell him, I don't know, I, I just can't, I can't find, there's no animals out there. He says, but that's not my problem, and so he threatens me. So I said, wait a second, before you kill me, let's go to uh, the elder that we both respect, and let's see if there's some wisdom there. And we go to the elder, and the elder kind of governs over us and says, okay, look, you neighbor, promise not to kill David, and David next season will give you twice the amount of meat. And I say, I can live with that. That's a joke. Okay, um, yes, I can live with that. And, and that's, a, that's an example of just basic governance. Someone just adjudicates and says, okay, this seems fair. You get twice the amount next year to pay and compensate for what you lost this year. And while I'm going home, I'm just, I'm singing a song because I'm like, okay, I got a new lease on life now. I'm feeling good. I'm now singing. And, and that's what sociologists would call the arts, right? That every society kind of ha- seems to have each of these kind of like functions. Like, and when you think about that, superimposing that upon Genesis 1 and that framework that you saw, you begin to see that human beings have done the same thing. We've created these spheres of family, economics, government, and arts, and we've filled it in different forms. Right? That there are different kinds of economic structures out there. Free market capitalism, socialism. Uh, there are different governmental structures out there. There are different kinds of arts. And there are different ways that people raise their families with different values. But these structures or these fears allow for the diversity and for the flourishing of each of those kind of activities that's embodied within that sphere. Now, what defines each of those spheres is, at the core of it, is a essence that without, which, without that essence, that sphere would no longer exist. So examples of the essence within those spheres in the family is nurture. So if you do not have a family that nurtures one another, it will cease to survive. I mean, that's the clearest with, with, with kids and with babies. Secondly, if you have an economic structure in which there are not opportunities being afforded for people, you will have a revolt. Same thing with governments that, uh, that are not just. Over time, when governments do not embody justice for its people, the people will revolt against that government. And when it comes to the arts, 
you know, art without imagination is not art. If I just merely reproduce some artwork, it doesn't make me an artist. An artist takes something that is unseen and makes it then seen, which requires the imagination. And the way that these spheres work is that each essence begins to bleed into the others, such that, for example, when you have an economic structure that becomes more just, right, opportunities that are just is a better economic structure. If only a certain kind of person is able to get uh, kind of loans for your small business, you would say, well, that's good for that, that group of people, but that's not very good for the other group of people. But let's bring a little bit of justice in that and change the regulation so that those kind of practices can't happen and that anyone can get a small business loan. All of a sudden, that economic sphere starts to flourish. And same is true with um, the imagination. When imagination enters into the economic sphere, we create things like ETFs. For those of you who are in you know, finance, you know, like, that is a creative solution to being able to create value just from a whole j- bunch of different kinds of stock. That takes creativity. Some of the most creative people I know are those people who look at Excel spreadsheets all day, and they're looking at numbers, and they're figuring out, how can this spreadsheet actually give me information that I can go to a person and say, this is where you need to put your retirement money into. You know, I meet people in New York where they don't think that you need creativity in order to do an Excel spreadsheet. But then they realize without that creativity, they're going to be killing themselves. And where do they get that creativity? Where does that creativity get, where does it flourish? Well, it's the art section. It's the art sphere. And that's why for every society, when the arts are not a flourishing part of the society, the whole society begins to falter. And so the arts are not an ancillary part of our our understanding of civil society. It's really a critical part. It's a primary part of our our vision for society. Now, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here. I understand that here. But I want you as artists, because every time I gave this talk to artists in New York City, it's kind of like, wow, I never realized how important we were. And it's true. And it's anchored in creation that God has entrusted in this sphere of the arts, people that would understand how critical imagination is to the whole and the flourishing of society, and especially in times of darkness, of which we are in now. Now, I want to take this now as we think about what are the implications of the sphere of the arts and the way that artists are called to cultivate and steward the imagination. What does that mean for our time today? And when we think about the role of the church or the Christian artist, I want to emphasize where creation began. When we go back to Genesis 1, before there is light, what would we have? Darkness, chaos, disorder. And let's think about that for a second, that before those words, let there be light, we have a God that is in darkness. I don't know if you guys have ever been in absolute darkness. Uh, I used to work in a lab, and I had to develop these films every day. And I would, you know, pitch black, um, taking out the film, and, and I remember just going to the, you know, turning off all the lights, and then I put the film in the processor. I was waiting for the film to be processed. Like, you know, that darkness, you could just put your hand in front, and you can't see anything. And darkness can be both terrifying, but also this place of such clarity. 
Let's think about that for a moment. Darkness can either be terrifying or it can be a place of great clarity. And God begins his creation narrative with him implicitly sitting or standing or doing things in darkness. Maka Fujimura talks about this in his book, Art and Faith. And so if you want to hear a lot more of that, I encourage you to read that book if you haven't already. But part of why I think that is so important, because we see the parallel between creation and new creation. That before all this flourishing happens, that the, the precursor or the prelude to this life-giving flourishing is darkness. And what is true for creation is true for new creation. That before the power of Christ would be released in the world, he himself had to go through unspeakable darkness. Darkness upon the cross and the darkness of the tomb. But that darkness was a prelude to something that would bring this unimaginable flourishing out into the world. And that narrative is at the heart of the Christian imagination. It's at the heart of what I believe to be a Christian approach to faith and work. That when we think about what is distinctive about how a Christian approaches their work, well, the Christian approaches work from the position of darkness, of brokenness. That we understand that we live in a broken world and we have been called into that work of entering into darkness so that life can be at work. Paul says it this way, death is at work in me so that life can be at work in you. But that narrative is so hard to understand when you're in the midst of that darkness. When you're in the midst of that darkness, all you feel is the confusion and the pain and the loss. And in that loss, you can begin to hear the wrong voices. And so that darkness becomes the the prelude or the incubation for either a society that begins to veer towards that top right, towards a flourishing trajectory because they see a larger narrative that's in view, or they enter into the decline because they've heard other voices that reinforce the confusion, the judgment, the condemnation. And so how is it that artists can really begin to lean into their calling well, it's, it's to first to understand what darkness have you experienced? It's the hard work of sitting in the darkness, sitting in the darkness and allowing the hardships and the pain to be experienced through the voice of one who is able to take you through that darkness. Because you realize that in that darkness, the voice of the Lord speaks And it's that voice that begins to bring that life-giving activity. And so my call, my charge, or exhortation to you all as artists, Christian artists, is to allow yourself to enter into that darkness. But in that darkness, as you are companioning with Christ, with other voices that are able to help you hear that life-giving interpretation of that darkness. I don't know how many of you have seen, you know, uh, I've seen way too many AGT YouTube videos. Um, and uh, Nightbird, I remember just the first time I heard her sing. I don't know if you know um, her story, but she has uh, terminal cancer. And she's been fighting it, though, fighting hard. She has cancer in three parts of her body. And she sang a song. It's a song that she had written. And the lyrics are, the, the chorus goes, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. 
And, you know, in the midst of her singing that, you just saw, you know, the camera pants and all the judges, and there's Simon. I mean, Simon, you can see his face is just utterly transformed because there's this kind of um, connection that he obviously has. And spoiler alert, I mean, he does the golden buzzer thing, and, and she wins. Uh, I'm not spoiling anything because that's how it's said on YouTube. Like gold, gold, um, But why I bring that up is because how in the world is someone who is facing terminal cancer singing and writing about this song in front of a stage of thousands of people and then millions of people now watching, how in the world is she able to do that? What narrative does she have in her mind that enables her to stand on a stage knowing that her days are numbered? And yet with this hope that overpowers even a person like Simon Cowell, that that hope begins to help people reimagine what life can be. We need more examples of people who are willing to enter into that darkness and emerge out of the darkness having heard the voice of the Lord, a different narrative that brings hope because there is something in the future. There is something coming in the return of Christ, in which all that was lost will be found again. All that was broken will be made new again. And the newness is not just a fixing of the brokenness. It's something that is even more than it. It's the new newness, again, as Mako Fujimura writes in his book. It's a new newness that the world has not seen yet. It's not looking at the past and trying to fix what is broken. It's looking into the future that is more glorious and more profound than anything we have yet to experience. And we, as Christians, having the Spirit of God, have access to that. And the access comes when we're in the darkness, because in the darkness we have clarity. In the darkness, we don't have the sight that we normally have distracting us, keeping us from hearing the voice of God in our lives. And when we're in that darkness, we hear the Lord's voice with such clarity that we're able to now speak into the lives of other people to say that there is a hope despite what we experience in the darkness of our world. There is a hope that empowers our spirit, that enables us to love one another and to look at the other with a humanity that upholds the dignity and the worth of every human being. We're living in a time where God's spirit is working powerfully and the darkness is, is, is the indication of what is happening, what can happen, I should say, in the coming years or generation. We are at a pivot point, I believe, in the midst of this darkness. We can begin to go into that lower left-hand quadrant where we begin to experience the worst fears that we have of what humanity is capable of with all that we have technologically, all that we have access to, all the fears that we have from Black Mirror to all the kind of apocalyptic visions of what is ahead. Or we can begin to understand this larger narrative and imagination that Christians and Christian artists really put out there into the world to say that there is a hope that lies ahead of us, a world that is breaking into our world today. And I want to just close with this one, one quote um, from, from uh, Wendell Berry. He wrote this, uh, his book, Hidden Wound, and he wrote it in 1968. Uh, that was right after Martin Luther King Jr. was shot, a few years after he returned to Kentucky uh, to farm. But I don't know if you knew, before he was at Kentucky, he did a stint at Stanford in New York, but he wrote this in um, The Hidden Wound here. And, and I think this is such a power. Again, 1968. 1968. 
If the white man has inflicted the wound of racism upon black men, the cost has been that he would receive the mirror image of that wound into himself. As the master or a member of a dominant race, he has felt little compulsion to acknowledge it or speak of it. The more painful it has grown, the more deeply he has hidden it within himself. But the wound is there, and it is a profound disorder, as great a damage in his mind as it is in his society. The wound is in me, as complex and deep in my flesh as blood and nerves. I have borne it all my life with varying degrees of consciousness, but always carefully, always with the most delicate consideration for the pain. I would feel it if I, I would feel if I were somehow forced to acknowledge it. But now I am incredibly aware of the opposite compulsion. I want to know as fully and exactly as I can what the wound is and how much I am suffering from it. I want to be cured. I want to be free of the wound myself. I do not want to pass it on to my children. Perhaps this is only wishful thinking. Perhaps such a thing is not to be done by one man or in one generation. Surely a man would have to be almost dangerously proud to think himself capable of it. And so maybe I am really saying only that I feel an obligation to make the attempt and that I know if failed to make at least the attempt, I forfeit any right to hope that the world will become better than it is now. 1968. Like many things of Wendell Berry, very prophetic. But I think he captures again what the artist brings into the world. Statements like that begin to paint a whole other imagination of what is possible. And with all the darkness that we have before us, what is the Lord calling you? What darkness is he calling you to sit in? To sit in with him. What pains do we all have that the Lord desires to free us from, but not just free us, but free the world around us with? And your voice, your gifts, your talents, God has given them to you so that you might be in our society that light that takes us from darkness and into something that will gloriously enter into the world when Christ returns. Join me as we pray. Father, we thank you that uh, as we gather here, well, we know that you are doing something profound in our world. And in the calmness of this time and in this room, we thank you that your spirit is working. But give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you are calling us to. And as we think about the calling of the artists, Lord, we ask that you would enable them to sit in the darkness and reimagine what is possible given the hope that is before us in, in the work of Christ and the return of Christ and the coming of glory. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.